Welcome, everybody, to the Kona Shane Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Work. Guys, I'm here with my good friend, Dr. Emily Tincher. She is talking with me about spectrum of care. She talks a lot about spectrum of care. I ask her hard questions about what does spectrum of care look like? How is it different from what we've done in the past? How do we balance uh, making care accessible with advocating for what's best for pets? Um, you know, those those things can be challenging when we, we want to make sure care is affordable. And at the same time, we want to make sure we're still pushing to to do the most good that we can do in the world for the pets. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it's really interesting conversation. Guys, I enjoy the heck out of this. I hope you'll enjoy it too. This episode is made possible ad-free by our friends at Nationwide Pet Insurance. Gang, let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help your veterinary career welcome to the cone of shame with dr andy rourke welcome to the podcast dr emily tensher thanks for being here thank you so much for having me it's my pleasure is this your first time on the podcast my, i think it this is. is my first time on the podcast yes that's amazing to me you uh you are uh you're a good friend of mine and have been for a long time i think the world of you and i have known you for years and years uh we met way back in the day i think i had graduated from vet school and you were a vet student i may be very being just being very generous to myself in my age but uh but we met through the VBMA, which is the student business group. And then I was, I've was i stayed involved in that uh, as a national advisor for years. And then, and you you have stayed involved in well. So for those who don't know you, you are the senior director of vet relations at Nationwide Pet Insurance. You are doing a bunch of stuff. You're, you've got your hands all over these uh, white papers that have been coming out uh, from Nationwide. They've got uh, just a variety of different topics, so it's, um, different uh cancer rates according to uh, to dog breeds there's some senior pet stuff that's come out um you guys have some new stuff coming out i think about brachycephalic pets uh, pretty soon and like you've just got all this research stuff coming out and then you're lecturing all over the place on spectrum of care which is an interest of mine and we've talked a lot about that and uh and so yeah that's that's what i want to talk to you about today but i it's 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 surprising to me that I haven't had you on the podcast before. That's an oversight on my part. Have you been? Well, I'm just so excited to be here now. I know we've uh, been grateful to just like a bad penny, I guess. I keep showing up uh, <laughs> from starting as a vet student at Auburn. Uh, came in and lectured to our VBMA. And then, yeah, we, we were involved when I was a on the National VBMA board and was an, uh, an advisor with you before I step back now as the founding and, and platinum sponsor of the VBMA that Nationwide is. Uh, and, and so yes. get to remain involved just in a different way now, uh, building curriculum. For oh, yeah. I forgot you were at Auburn. And Auburn. Yeah. I forgot you were at Auburn. You get to do really cool stuff. Like, yeah, you you still you still go to the vet schools. Uh, you guys have some student uh, development programs going on. Uh, you get some programs for the VBMA around spectrum of care. Like, you're getting to do we cool do. stuff, Emily. That's that's super awesome. <laughs> uh, we spoke at every vet school this year about spectrum of care between the spring semester and the fall, uh, which was which was a lot of fun to get their feedback and hear them um, students' interest in just trying to find ways to meet pet families where they are and asking questions about how does evidence-based medicine fit in and and how does uh, you know how do we navigate all the the challenges with providing the care that. Uh, we recommend, oh, it's just been, it's really cool. I'm excited to get into it with you. All right. 
let's let's start to talk about spectrum of care in general. So so just go ahead in your own words define define the term spectrum of care for me and like that just to just to get just to get us on the same page of, of this general topic. Yeah, so we we did not come up with this definition for the record of, of spectrum of care at nationwide. We use a published definition that are um, that came from a couple of JAFMA uh, publications that uh, spectrum of care is providing a range of diagnostic and treatment options for, for pet families across uh, basic to advanced that meet their needs and their goals with relation to their values and their resources, of course, including finances um, being, being one of the main ones, but that acknowledging that there are many different ways to treat everything from wellness to most conditions that, that we see in practice. Okay. Talk to me a bit about how you see spectrum of care as a rising topic and trend in vet medicine. So what does the integration of spectrum of care look like compared to what vet medicine has looked like in the past? Like a lot of times we talk about spectrum of care and a lot of people are like, that's what we've always done. Help, help me help me get my head around how this vision of the future with spectrum of care looks different from what we've historically done. In many ways, it 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 doesn't necessarily look different from vet med of, of many years past. So I'm a second generation veterinarian. My parents are both vets and I grew up in their rural practice that they owned in Kentucky. And watching them practice um, across all the range of socioeconomic statuses of their uh, the pet families that they served, um, I really saw that you can do a lot with a little and you can also... Um, you know, offer people the opportunity to refer or to have advanced level care if that's what they're seeking and have the resources to support. What I think is really important and a critical component of offering a spectrum of care is making sure that we integrate the evidence-based medicine that's available, knowing there's not as much as we would like in veterinary medicine with uh, pet family-centered communication. And so, uh, we could talk a little bit about some exciting research that we completed this year at Nationwide in partnership with my genomics advisors to kind of work towards communicating in a, a pet family-centered way. I don't think that, I think there are many people that are practicing a spectrum of care right now. Uh, what I think yeah. is often not discussed um, is how to do that as a as a vet student and a, and a, a new graduate. So uh, when I watched my parents growing up, they, they practice the spectrum of care. They just, they maybe didn't have a term to call it that, yeah. but they practice the spectrum They didn't have a care. marketing slogan right. for it. Yeah. It, it's helpful though, to have a term and to have definitions that we can all kind of get behind and, and work towards. Um, I think the pendulum is swung with academia to where um, for, for quite some time, we've, we were focused on excitingly and, and fairly the um, increased specialization and um, it took, I think, a little bit of time for our profession to notice that there were some challenges associated with the awesome uh, education that specialists can provide, and, and we need them very much. But sometimes there is a little bit of an oversight or a lot of an oversight on, but what does it look like when people can't or don't want to pursue the most advanced level of care, especially as we have new diagnostics, we have new drugs that are awesome, allow us to do, um, you know, more than we ever have in the past. They also 
cost more. And that's not necessarily uh, veterinary medicine. I think one of the greatest challenges that we see is that veterinary medicine, the advanced level of care, getting more expensive. And if we can only think that you deserve to own a pet, if you provide that advanced level of care, that pets are a luxury, we're in trouble. Not only is it unrealistic, uh, but pet families are not considering what their vet thinks before they go get a pet. Um, we we want to serve the, the you know diverse population of pet families that are out there that do have over 50 million um, owned U.S. cats and dogs. Then we are going to have to meet them where they're at a little bit with what their goals are and what their needs are. Yeah. Okay. There's a, that's a lot to unpack <laughs> and, and I, I like it. So, so first of all, let me say, I think you really put your finger on, on how I feel about this. Cause I, I like to ask questions that I struggle to answer myself. Cause I'm like, Oh, maybe, maybe Emily will have a better answer than I do. I, I think when you talked about a pendulum, I, I think that's where I am as well. And so when we talk about spectrum of care and giving people options, I, I think a lot of people go, well, we've given options forever. I think that you're exactly right is when we zoom in on, on how we train new graduates. And uh, an increasingly high gold standard of care. Uh, to me, that that's the pendulum swing of I love that we have pushed towards increasing our capabilities and what we can do and how we educate uh, our doctors. And at some point, I do think it's time to, to swing back a little bit the other way and say, and just because theoretically we can do something doesn't mean that that's going to be the best course of action for this individual pet owner. I also, from a wellness standpoint, think that if we set ourselves up as doctors as I'm only a good doctor if I get people to do the highest technical standard of care possible, I, I don't I don't think that's realistic and, and that may sound foolish, but I know I know young doctors who grade themselves that way. They're like, Well, I couldn't get this person to do a TPLO. And I go, Well, why did you think you had that? Like, all you can do is recommend and advocate, and you're not going to be able to magically enable people to give their pet a TPLO. Like, you're going to have to talk about medical management sometimes. And that's not ideal. That's not what we aim for. But it's not a failure on your part if that's just not in the cards with this patient. And and real skill as a doctor comes from being able to look at that and saying, okay, what other cards do we have to play here to, to get the best outcome possible in this case? So I, re I really like that a lot. Um, there's a, a small I, piece I want to um, dive into yeah. that you just mentioned there that it may not be ideal if a pet family doesn't choose a TPLO. Well, I, I mean, there are there's some great evidence base. I love to that that's that example you brought up is one where we do have great evidence based medicine that there are other options like a, a lateral suture, for example, that can have a very mm -hmm. similar outcome to a TPLO or a TTA, you know, referral historically, usually to see a board certified surgeon. Now, the best possible uh, outcome may be to go see a surgeon with the lowest chances of uh, complications. However, talking to pet families about their options, that range of basic to intermediate options, uh, my my definition of, that I'm I'm trying to use more and more is that the ideal or best outcome it, it the medical component is included, but that the best outcome is the best outcome for the family. So if for them they're anxious about surgery, about anesthesia, even if it's not just about costs, maybe there's a comor comorbidity for the pet. It might be that basic care is the best for that particular family. Uh, for for multiple reasons in addition to finances. Or it may be that it, it you know, if your practice offers uh, that more intermediate approach of a lateral suture, which 
not everyone has that skill set, the ability to perform that surgery. Um, that's in addition to, you know, meeting kind of that family where they're at with their goal to stay with you as a general practitioner can help keep the revenue within your practice if you're, you have the ability to perform that surgery. Well, I also would add to that, too, when we think about what is success, you know, I, I like to take the long view on these things as well and say trust in the relationship is also mm-hmm. a factor of success for me as well. Like I've seen I, I've definitely seen people go in and aggressively advocate for a path of care and get it done. And then that client will do it. And then they go home and they're like, I'm not going back to that person. I really felt I felt pressured. I This isn't this isn't what on in hindsight, I, I kind of. I kind of felt pressured into into this course of action. I didn't want to do it. I don't really like that veterinarian. And so I'd say, well, now we kind of won the battle but lost the war, especially if those people are reluctant to go back to a veterinarian and, and it affects care in the future. And so, you know, I, I always try to say that the outcome for me is not the best outcome today. It's the best cou- outcome over the life of the pet and the life of multiple pets underneath one client. I want to I I dive in a little bit and take apart some of the stuff that you said earlier, because I think this is an interesting way that you've kind of built this up when you talk about spectrum of care. So you talked about uh, evidence-based medicine and then you talked about communication and kind of sounds like you're putting those two things together. And so you you threw around the term sort of evidence-based medicine. And then when we talked about the TPLO, you got to unpack that a little bit. Talk to me about those two things. So we'll start with evidence-based medicine. Then I'm going to talk to you about the communication, we can get into the genomics research and stuff like that as well. So yeah. just just uh, unpack that for me. When you say evidence-based medicine, um, this is a phrase I've heard for you know the last couple of decades, uh, it's kind of thrown around. I think when I talk about spectrum of care and look at spectrum of care, one of the things I really struggle with is what is good medicine and what is a, an acceptable standard? And I think a lot of us have a certain level of fear because you know we talk about malpractice. Malpractice is failing to meet the standard of care, which is not written down anywhere. It's it's yeah. it's a it's a concept that lives in the minds yeah. of the people who will be reviewing your work. Yeah. And I think that that is a scary idea. And so help me help me get my head around what is evidence based medicine? What is actually out there that's useful? And, and what do you see as the future of this and, and its impact on our profession? Yeah, I think it's a great point to bring up. And it's a, a common challenge that we have been discussing, uh, not not alone, certainly with uh, other um, organizations to say what what does it mean to uphold a standard of care, which is what we are legal and, and legally and ethically required to uphold as veterinarians. Um, everything that is above the standard of care can fit into a spectrum of care that range from basic to advanced. But yeah, how do you know what what meets the basic needs? What it, what is the minimum for any particular thing that that you are seeing for the day, whether it's well care or whether it's um, you know some something with a sickness or an injury. Well, it's great when we have evidence-based medicine, i.e. there are some actual research studies, ideally publications, that allow us to say, um, we know that this particular condition has this particular outcome with this particular treatment in, you know, know, some cohort of dogs. Now, sometimes we have that. And I think a parvo is one that I I love kind of considering for... uh, for a spectrum of care to say, okay, it's a pretty common challenge that we have to treat in veterinary medicine. And there is, um, we have a, a you know advanced level protocol of hospitalization that typically has about a 90, 90% success rate. And then we have an intermediate level uh, option for pet families with, you know, other, other components to consider uh, like having to come back and forth to the practice every day to meet the Colorado State Protocol for Outpatient Management. 
that particular protocol has an 80% success rate. So eight in 10 dogs will do well with outpatient management versus nine in 10 with hospitalization. And the difference in, co- in cost is drastic. It's often thousands of dollars. Right. So uh, talking to pet families about you know their odds, the pros and cons of the, the decisions that they make and having uh, the confidence to make those recommendations, I think all of us as applied scientists feel better about knowing what the options are and recommending them in a, a way that uh, can can address the concerns that any particular pet family has when we have that evidence-based component to lean upon. We are trying to add to that. You mentioned some of the white papers that we've published. We are trying to add to that with our over 40 years of experience in pet health and over uh, 1.1 million pets insured nationwide. We have a lot of data. And so we're trying to analyze that data. We have a dedicated pet health analytics and insights team led by our chief veterinary officer, Dr. Jules Benson, where we are trying to add to that, um, but it, it's a it's a mammoth task. So <laughs> we, you know, leaning on yeah. evidence based medicine is huge for a spectrum of care. Knowing we aren't going to have all the information that we want most of the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I I love it. I I I really I would really love to continue to see these types of publications. You know, get 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 the data out so you can so you can put your phone on something. I think the part of it was a great example. I'm I'm really glad you brought that up. I mean, just to be able to even even just to know. Hey, 90% success rate this way, 80% this way. You can have really clear conversations. You can have a clear, uh, you can have a clear thought in your mind about, um, about how you feel about, about what you're advocating, right? And, and, uh, I don't know. There, there's that. I remember earlier in my career kind of saying, okay, I'm going to make sure that I document that these people declined, you know, declined, uh, hospitalization. And that's still good practice. But I felt a, a certain sort of fear or moral weight of like, uh, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen when they when they take this pet and they leave, and and it, you know, am I am I impressing on them enough the dangers of leaving? And you go, okay, well, now I have some things to fall back on and some guidance where I can say they're not going to be able to hospitalize, and we can we can have this other conversation, and they also know the choice that they're making, and I can give them that clarity. So I think that's beautiful. Talk to me a bit about about the. Uh, about the communication part of this. And so well, part of it is, is having a, a knowledge of what are our options, what are inside our, our spectrum of care, um, what is between the gold standard and acceptable standard, what, what are our options in there, and then, and then communicating those. So talk to me a little bit about your ideas about, about what good spectrum of care communication looks like. Oh, so it's a great question, and it, I'm going to answer it in a couple of parts, one being some of the really cool research that we completed this summer with Nationwide and partnering with Mind Genomics Advisors and then the second one being kind of piloting out that research and getting feedback from vet healthcare teams and feedback from vet students uh, with our college program. So part one is what, is it, what does it look like to communicate with pet families in a, a pet family-centered way, avoiding judgment and trying to actively be sure that we are understanding what their goals and their values are, as well as their resources, the finances component that we sometimes kind of... Um, focus on uh, in a um, can feel negative to pet families, it, it, depending on how we represent things, not, not in a way that um, I think we mean for it to, but I've had a, a pet sure. family say to me that it, it felt like I was talking to my vet about, and they seemed like a used car salesman. I was like, I no vet wants to sound like that. I'm confident that right. n- none of us want to come off that yeah. way, but I can understand it. Is there, you know, it, it is important to have those financial discussions. So how do we, how do we do that? And how do we kind of shortcut 
the um, the communications to get to the point of what what do pet families really value? What are they looking for from us, and what are they looking for from veterinary healthcare? So we we tried to identify that with a um, a, a process that Mind Genomics has. Um, used mostly in human medicine to understand what are the subconscious drivers behind the choices that we make. And I won't go through <laughs> through the process for, for how we did it right now. This is, um, I can, it gets a little nerdy, but the, out, <laughs> the output is that um, I, we identified three different viewpoints uh, through, instead of going through kind of typical survey methods, they use um, a mixture of multiple types of sciences. Um, behavioral sciences is, is a, a big one that they lean upon. Uh, even some food science kind of ideas are included, but um, getting to the idea of, okay, there are there are three categories of, um, and, and we, we built messaging surrounding uh, spectrum of care and how, you know, how pet family, how specifically pet parents would respond to 36 different messages. And in the end, we have three viewpoints. The first one is one that's focused on um, two, two things, optionality. Uh, they're looking for their pet, their vet healthcare team to talk to them about the options available to them. And they're looking to have a, a strong focus on what the evidence-based component, what the outcome for their pet's health is going to yeah. be. Second one is highly focused on um, kind of a mixture of that there are cost conscious, but also what does it look like to, to feel like, to feel clinical empathy from their vet healthcare team that feel like they're the best pet owner they possibly can be while acknowledging that they this this group is is pretty cost conscious. Uh, so they, they're looking mm-hmm. for ways to um, either they're unable or unwilling, they've got you know, multiple priorities going on. They're looking for different ways to Kind of have the best possible value for any any plans that we pr- present to them, and the last one is uh, a group that's highly focused on how can we uh, integrate our recommendations with their schedules in a you know sort of convenience. Like how, how can we make uh, the medications that we recommend or the follow up schedule that we recommend as easy as possible for their schedule, while still all three groups being very focused on what's good for their pet but that shows up in different ways for them. The top finding that we have from this research is that everyone hates, which leads to the kind of the implementation of this, everyone hates having the most expensive option offered first. Uh, I'm gonna just like let that Hmm. sink in for a moment because that is how most of us are trained to prevent, uh, uh, to present options to pet families. And by considering that, but with that finding as a, as a top finding, when we asked pet families, how do they want us to engage in communication with them? With that as a top finding, I went back to the, we went back to the research and said, okay, well, the interesting thing about the order that we present our recommendations in is that the first option, and this is, um, again, doesn't, not, not uh, research that we came up with, but is well represented in a spectrum of care. Uh, publication, um, Brown et al., if anyone wants to go look for more information about um, the order that you represent things is uh, pretty cognitively biased. So there's a ton of research Mm -hmm. in human healthcare that the first option presented is usually the one that people choose. But 
That does not mean people are later happy with that choice. So going back to your observation earlier that sometimes we do eventually get people to agree to, you know, the most advanced option and kind of they say yes to it, but they don't later, they may not come back. They may may reflect on that and say, it wasn't, it wasn't exactly what I wanted or needed for my family. So we're the, the recommendation that we are going with, again, with published research supporting it is to instead use our, our research, and we have a tool that we'll be releasing uh, early next year that will help with this, uh, to use our research to instead recommend the option that you think will fit best with the pet family first. Make sure they have three options and then check in and say, okay, which one do you think is the best fit based on this conversation that we're having? And finally, be sure, of course, that you document that you have um, discussed all three options and why the pet family has chosen that option to, to get back to the fear that you mentioned earlier of, you know, how do, we, how do we make sure that we feel comfortable with the idea of a spectrum of care? Well, documentation is, is a very important part of that. Yeah. So this gets into, this gets into the weeds pretty quick. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I think, I think, I think the obvious places where this gets pretty hairy is, you know, how do you know which uh, which is the best fit for the parents, right? Like, for the for the pet parents, mm-hmm. and so again, we we've talked for a long time about not X-raying people's wallets or guessing as to what they're able or available to do, you know. And and we all have pretty good research that also says uh, people are not as transparent as they like to think that they are. You know, people don't people don't tend to know what you're thinking, mm-hmm. and so. I guess that would be my first question is, you know, how do you know what fits well with the parents? And then the other thing I would say is, what is, how does this interface with the idea that vet professionals have a responsibility to advocate for what's best for the pet? Um, and, you know, as opposed to say, making things easy on the pet owner, I think some of it comes down to like, what are your, what are your goals in the room? Um, yeah. And, and so I guess I sort of kind of put that back to you. I know there's a lot to unpack, but what is what does that look like? And to me, this is this is really kind of where things get 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 difficult to parse apart. So, how do you know what what pet families' goals are uh, and their resources yeah, are? Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. in some way, we have to have a conversation, and no amount of uh, research or tool that we can provide will be able to magically tell us. You still, every pet family is going to be a little bit different. Have to have that conversation, which begins. It's not not for the veterinarian to have, it's for the whole vet healthcare team to have, which is, is what I love about the resources that you put together is acknowledging that everyone has a massive role in, in these these conversations and from technicians and CSRs and then the vet is the the final link in, in that in that team. Um, it's a it's a research that we have can help shortcut that with uh, by asking a few questions. And kind of a, a, a process that says, okay, in, in general, most of the time, the, these are um, people fit into one of three categories based on a couple of questions that we ask. And what's really important about uh, that research is that we also ask the demographics associated with it. So if you sometimes uh, there, there have been previous conversations around assuming that various socioeconomic levels or anyone with uh, a different family or racial or ethnic background um, might have certain ways that they interact with their pet. And not only is that uh, bias and ethically wrong, it's also not founded in the research. Right. So it's almost an even split, whether you're looking at age, income level, um, familial status, uh, education level, 
almost an even split across those three viewpoints, which is is great. It was, a, you know, certainly what you hope to find is <laughs> great, great uh, justification for saying you, you can't look at someone uh, and just imagine what they might value. You have to have the conversation. And our process helps, I think, shorten that conversation. But it's still, you know, whether it's a, a major life event has just happened. Of course, we've, we've had vet healthcare teams. We have people tell us, they do tell us things all the time. We're such a trusted profession that I'm so grateful to be part of that people feel comfortable, even as an ER vet, they've never met me before, feel comfortable telling me that they've just lost their husband, that their house just burned down, that they are... Yeah going on mm-hmm. vacation and therefore things are, uh, they just got back from vacation yesterday. And so that's uncomfortable to admit that that's why your finances are tough, but it's real life. Um, so have, having yeah. that conversation and, and asking and, and asking in a way that's collaborative <laughs> uh, is mm-hmm. I think step one, even though knowing it can be uncomfortable, but it's m- more uncomfortable and doesn't cut to your second part of your question, doesn't help pets get any care if we you know only recommend something that's not possible for the pet family they're getting yeah. nothing <laughs> so if they if they walk yeah. away and say no or they say yes but they never come back to see us again i in my opinion that's worse for the pet long term i i really i really like that i i there's some really good examples I, I think so so what it sounds like you're saying i guess how, how it sort of strikes me is like this is what we've always done in a lot of ways it's it's about it's about you know, building a trusting relationship and having good communication. And I, I go back to relationship. It's, uh, as you say this, I think about how transparent people have been in the past with me about what, what's possible and where they are. And I go, Oh, I think probably a lot of us are doing this in a common sense way. You know, I can say my, my, my take in the exam room is if there's something that based on our conversation, I think is the best fit for them. I, I generally say based on our conversation, this is this is what I think is probably going to be the best fit for us. And then I'll say, you know, alternatively, more aggressively blank or more conservatively blank. And I, I give them those options, but it's always been, I, I very much am aware and take advantage of the fact that the first thing that I say is going to have extra weight, which is why I try to do the best job of saying, this is, this is what I, this is what I recommend. I think, I think big things for me are, you know, just the basics, blocking and tackling of exam room communication, which is, you know, open-ended questions, listen to people, ask, ask to learn, not to, not to respond, try to understand where they're coming from, uh, ask them some, some lead-in questions about how do you feel about this? Or, you know, what do you, what would you think about this? Or what are your concerns? Or what are your goals for today? And things like that. And just try, try to extract those, those bits of information. But I, I think those are really good examples of what it looks like to listen to a person and then make uh, a good recommendation based on, on your understanding of what they've shared with us. I, I've always, I've always thought that it, I've always thought that it was cringeworthy when you would go, uh, you would, the, the idea being that a veterinarian would go into an exam room and listen to a person talk about how they just lost their car because it got repossessed. And, and then they turn around and make this recommendation, which is, well, here's what we need to do. And then, and they give this very high price thing and then, and then offer some lower cost alternatives that was sort of like, didn't you, didn't you hear, didn't you hear what I, yeah. what I said when I talked about losing my car? Yeah. And, and I just, 
I just think that's just basic common sense of being a good person and, and building a relationship and 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 playing again to the long term, yeah. right? Like the goal is not to work today. It's it's to it's to build a relationship with this pet owner that's going to get them on board with taking care of their pet and communicating with me as a provider, uh, as a healthcare provider for the long term. So I, I thought I I think you really answered that well. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's it's uh, more important than ever to have. I love the way you described like it's it's a lot of core communication skills that are, they're, they're not new, uh, but they are really important. But it's more important than ever to employ them in a non-judgmental way. I think we still have estimates vary, but if you look at the Access to Care Coalition's research, at least 50% of U.S.-owned cats and dogs don't see a veterinarian on an, an annual basis. And if you look at our, part, our partners at Vet Success. Um, who analyze on a and send out a very cool free weekly tracker um, that the number of vet visits is going down, uh, but the revenue and, and income associated with them is going up. It's getting more expensive to provide care, um, and that that has implications for the pet families that we serve. It's a challenging problem for sure. Um, but yeah. it's not sustainable to have for us as a profession to have fewer and fewer people coming in and bring their pets in, nor is it, you know, serving the basic needs. We, I think we can all agree that pets deserve some amount of basic health care. You know, right now, we're already not serving, you know, staffing challenges, notwithstanding, already not serving about 50% of the U.S. owned cats and dogs out there. Yeah. Uh, Emily Tinsher, you're amazing. Thank you so much for being here and talking through this with me. Where um, you, You've thrown out a lot of resources. You have a lot of things going on. What are your favorite resources right now? What, what are the things that you want people to be most aware of? That's a great question. I um, So one of the things that you could do to, to find our uh, white papers, uh, so we talked a little bit about some of the evidence-based medicine we're putting out into the world, is petinsurance.com slash pet data where you can find them. We have a new Spectrum of Care website that will be launching in January. So stay tuned for that. But you can uh, also follow um, Jules or I on LinkedIn. Um, And then as far as additional resources for like you're just interested in Spectrum of Care, uh, the Brown et al. paper that I mentioned, as well as Finglin et al., which is from... um, published from the Ohio State, who are absolutely leading in a spectrum of care in education, are some great places to just uh, to get started if you want to learn more about the topic itself. Yeah, guys, I'll put links in the show notes to all those things. So you can just check them out there. Uh, Emily, thanks again for being here. Everybody take care of yourself. Thanks for having me. And that is our episode, guys. That's what I got for you. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. Thanks again to Nationwide for making this episode possible. Gang, take care of yourselves. Be well. Talk to you soon.